Only Three Lads is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast family, home to some of the best music podcasts on the planet. Visit PantheonPodcast.com to discover more. And if you like what we do on O3L, we kindly ask you to please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on right now. It really helps us more than you know. You're about to listen to our special bonus episode featuring additional content from our conversation with Andy Strickland from The Loft and The Caretaker Race. If you haven't already, make sure to listen to the main episode where we discuss our top five albums of 1977 with Andy. If this is your first time joining us, we would love it if you subscribe, rate, and share our show and join the O3L community on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash only3lads. But now sit back, relax, and enjoy Only Three Lads in conversation with Andy Strickland. Come on in, join us. It's the Only Three Lads podcast where we take a look at the golden age of alternative music from 1974 to 1999. I am Uncle Greg. Of course, we have the Rockter, the professor of music, Brett Vargo. The professor of music. And of course, we just yeah. talked about our special guest this week. He's a, a musician, a music journalist. Why don't you introduce him, Brett? I'm going to roll back the clock to 1994 for a second, because as a young man obsessed with British pop, as you guys know that I am, Creation Records was a label that meant an awful lot to me, putting out a lot of records that I love by the likes of Oasis, The Boo Radleys, Primal Scream, My Bloody Valentine, etc. I knew that there was a history that predated those bands. When I found a CD called Creation Soup Volume 1, I had to pick it up. This was the first 10 singles that Creation released during 1983 and 1984, and I discovered some bands on that disc that I became very obsessed with. The Pastels, Jasmine Minx, and Creation boss Alan McGee's own band, Biff Bang Pow. But perhaps nothing else struck me quite as much as a pair of songs by The Loft, from creation single 009, Why Does the Rain and its flip side like. With its post-Velvet indie jangle, it was a glorious record that I think probably made it on just about every mixtape that I made for the rest of the decade. I promptly saw the compilation Once Round the Fair, which also included the contents of their equally brilliant follow-up single Up the Hill and Down the Slope. So fast forward to 2021, and our favorite reissue label, the wonderful Cherry Red Records, has released a marvelous two-CD collection of Loft recordings entitled Ghost Trains and Country Lanes, which collects the seven release creation tracks, the 2005 reunion session, live tracks, and radio sessions. So the loft was comprised of singer-songwriter guitarist Peter Astor, bassist Bill Prince, drummer Dave Morgan, and our fabulous guest today, guitarist Andy Strickland. So not only from the loft, but from his great band, The Caretaker Race, 
and the reformed version of the Chesterfields. Welcome, Andy Strickland, to Only Three Lads. Hi, the guys. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a real thrill. You know, Mr. Strickland, it's really a, a, a thrill having you. And uh, I, I see that you're a music journalist. I'm a journalist at trade, too. So I, I'm almost afraid of uh, seeing how much music knowledge that you have from this time period. Because, of course, we're looking at the best albums of 1977. Brett and I, we were there, but we weren't there. But you lived we it, lads. so I can't wait for this episode. I can't even wait to hear what you have to say. I was a kid, but I definitely lived through it. But I'm, I'm not a music journalist anymore, so you can rest easy. I'm not going to put anybody on the spot. Don't worry. I'm a retired <laughs> music journalist. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. You still have that little uh, that little spark, right, that led you to it. Oh God, yeah, that never goes away, does it? I'm still, <laughs> yeah, I'm still playing. I'm still writing. Still collecting records. You know, it all it all still happens. It's uh, you know a sickness and a hobby. Absolutely. I was watching some old guys last weekend playing with um, remote-controlled yachts, you know, they're like the little sort of mini yachts on a, on a little lake on the Isle of Wight here where I live. And they were all sort of similar age to me, perhaps a little bit older, but I thought if I didn't collect records, that's probably where I would be on a Sunday morning with my little com- remote control, you know, so it's, it's music or remote control boats. Sounds like a fun way to spend a Sunday morning. <laughs> So, of course, the focus of our episode today is 1977. You grew up on the Isle of Wight as well, right? Yeah, I was born and bred here. I'm For many generations, my family are islanders, and now I'm back here. So what was the musical climate like on the Isle of Wight in 1977? No bands ever came to play, which is people who, who know anything about the Isle of Wight might know that we had the two massive uh, rock festivals, one in 69 when Bob Dylan came, sort of came out of retirement and came bizarrely came and played on the Isle of Wight. And um, and then the following year with the Jimi Hendrix Festival, um, where hundreds and thousands of people came to this very small island off the south coast of England. So there was that sort of heritage thing. But I, I mean, I was a tiny little kid in the in the 60s. But by the by the sort of 70s and the mid 70s, when we were Mates and I were learning to play the guitar and we had a school band and stuff like that. There was no live music. Nobody came to the Isle of Wight if we wanted to see a gig. And when, once we eventually got old enough that we could, you know, we could go off on our own and go to gigs, we had to get right. ferries and go over to um, Portsmouth or Southampton. Um, and all the, all the big sort of rock acts of the 70s played over there. So we, oh. we would go over. I won't give away anything from my list, but we used to go over there and, you know, and see... Or oh, I don't know, you know, Wishbone Ash, Bebop Deluxe, you know, Black Sabbath, all those guys. They all played along the south coast um, and we'd wow. go over, uh, which entailed staying over there pretty much all night because you couldn't get a ferry back until very, very early in the morning. So we'd, we'd sit shivering on the, on the harbour <laughs> if it was sort of the winter, <laughs> waiting for a boat okay. to come back home. So did the festivals ruin rock music effectively for a few years at, on the Isle of Wight? Well, it got banned. You may, you, you may know there was an act of parliament. The, gov- the British government passed right. an act of parliament to say, you can't be doing that again. There were just too many people having too much fun. So um, <laughs> nobody, nobody tried to put anything on for, you know, for many, many years. Uh, around 77, 78, we did actually get a couple of punk bands came over and played, which was great because I had a little school punk band and we got to support some of these people, even though we were, you know, we were like, 16 17 but the damned came over and played at a holiday oh. camp and the lurkers came and played so yeah around that sort of mid to late 70s one or two people started to come down here but it was it was very thin on the ground well first of all it's nice to to hear that um 
the UK is a lot like the US. If there's a product or something that people uh, like too much or it's too helpful, it must be banned. <laughs> That's the same thing happens here all the time. Yeah, no fun, as uh, somebody else said. <laughs> so who were some of the artists in, in your early days that influenced you? Well, I, as I, I started off sort of learning the guitar, I was the first sort of music that really hooked me in was sort of by my older brother. My brother was three years, well, still is three years older than me. <laughs> and he started buying records by T-Rex and Slade and um, early Bowie singles, um, wow. things like that. So I had a terrible guitar, which was almost unplayable, an acoustic guitar. And I used to teach myself to play those songs, really, um, just by ear. So, you know, Gene Genie and um, Hot Love and all those, all those early T-Rex singles. And he had all the albums. So when he was out of the house, because I was obviously banned from going anywhere near them, when he was out of the house, um, we had a little dance set sort of record player. And I would sneak in and play them while he was away and just try and figure it out. So... Um, yeah, it was, it was a good good way to learn because you obviously you had to learn by ear. So as we progressed and got onto sort of a school punk band playing punk singles and trying to figure out the lyrics by putting the record on and keep taking the stylus on and off to you know, yeah. um, we we had a good ear developed. Well, it's kind of like you heard what the Beatles used to do. You know, they would they would get the latest import forty fives and they'd flip the record over and learn the B side first because that was the one that people were less likely to recognize as a cover. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, my my um my school punk band we were called the Confusers, and we started playing. There were there were a couple of little clubs down here that local bands could play at, and there was quite a nice little active scene. But most of the bands were sort of much older than us, and they they were you know they were all playing old rock stuff. Um, but we prided ourselves on once, once sort of seventy eight seventy nine got got moving, and the singles were all coming out quickly from various punk bands. We would do that thing where it was our aim that on the Saturday night we would play at least one record that had come out that week. So if The Clash had a single out or The Buzzcocks had a single out, we would learn it that week and we would play it the next Saturday night down the, down the club. Wow. So Yeah, that was quite good. That was good That's fun. That's discipline for young men. Yeah, yeah. We, were, we, were, we took it very seriously. Yeah, yeah. It was great music, great stuff. So. so did the loft form from the ashes of the confusers or was that a completely different thing? Yeah, no, that was, you had to get off the Isle of Wight to be in the loft. So okay. um, I went to college up in London in 1980 and um, we and the, the various members of the loft sort of came together over the next couple of years. But funnily enough, the very first person I met on my very first day when I moved to London in my college hall was Bill Prince, the bass player for the loft. There was nobody else in the building, just me and him. And he walked up the stairs carrying a big guitar case and uh I, we got chatting and you know here we are many many years later still mates and still still doing stuff so that was that was That's a bit incredible. of luck absolutely creation obviously ended up being a, a very driving force in british music what were the early days so the loft formed you guys signed i don't even know if really signing to creation was a thing back then but what were the early yeah. days of the label like well, it's very diy you know um it was basically all driven by Alan's Alan McGee's enthusiasm and and bullshit, really. You know, it was, it was that's that's what it all came down to. And um, so we were talking about sort of 1983. Alan started a club. I say a club. I mean, we're talking about British pubs with the yeah. tiny little room they tended to have on the first floor, which you could hire out and um, 
there were three or four of them right in the, right in central London behind Oxford Street, and they were they were usually used by um, folk clubs and you know twenty people sitting around stroking their chins, drinking warm beer, <laughs> pretending to be intellectual. Yeah, and Alan just um, decided came down from Glasgow and decided that he would put put a club on, play tapes of the Velvet Underground and Orange Juice and stuff, and get the you know the TV personalities and some of his other mates into play. So we um, we went to the very first night of that, um, and we, we we just went every every time we could um, and got to know Alan and Dick Green and Joe Foster eventually badgered him to let us play a gig there but we was we were called the living room the club was called the living room and we were right. called the living room so eventually we had a conversation that never would have worked yeah we gave alan a, a cassette tape and um he said well you can play but you've got to change your name so uh we decided that we'd go up in the world and call ourselves the loft <laughs> so was that total coincidence that your band was named the living room as well yeah absolutely absolute coincidence yeah wow happenstance yeah, but it was very, you know, it was a very small scene. It was it was probably like CBGB's was when it kicked off, you know. It was sort of 20, 30 people that, that went along and bizarrely all these bands sort of migrated towards it. And and for a band like us, it was really the only gig we could get in London. I mean, I, I moved up to London because I wanted to get into a band and play lots of gigs. And I would read the music press, devour the music press, and see all these gigs happening all across London in the mid to late seventies, yeah. and think I, that's what I want a part of. But what I didn't realise, of course, was that most of those venues were still sewn up by promoters and booking agents, and it, you know it wasn't just a case of getting a band together and going to play the Hope and Anchor or the, or the Roxy yeah. or whatever. But Allen's Club was one place where you could you could actually get a gig, you know, and if you were lucky, you might get five pounds in your hand at the end of the night. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big television personalities fan, so I mean, I've I've heard of you know the legendary nights at the living room. So that to me is like a club that I hold in like legendary mythological esteem. Oh, well, that's that's good. It's good to hear. But <laughs> it probably wasn't the reality, though. <laughs> no, that's that's the best way to have it. I think. I mean, I've got an idea of, of I would have loved to gone to CBGBs and seen television, but I suspect that probably wasn't quite as I'm picturing it as well, from what I've read. Yeah. What's your most fondest memory of playing those gigs? Um, well, we played, um, actually the gig that's on the CD that, that you've got there is, um, the gig we did in June 84, I think. And that was the, the very first night the Jesus and Mary chain played. They supported us. And I remember that it was quite a hot night. And the, the club night at that time was in a pub on Tottenham Court Road in London. I don't know if anyone knows Tottenham Court Road in London. Again, that's sort of fairly central. And the yeah. pub was called the Roebuck. And it was just a normal English pub. That's all it was. And um, we were, actually, we weren't headlining. Micro Disney. Do you know, you know Micro Disney, the Irish band? They're Micro Disney, yeah. Yeah, fantastic group. We used to play with them a fair bit around London. And they headlined and we were supporting them. And Alan said, oh, we've got, I've got these mates coming down from Glasgow. They'll go on first, you know. So um, we were up in this, and again, it's a very small room, uh, just a vocal PA, and these little funny-looking insect people came in to do their sound check, and it was just feedback. That's all it was. And yeah. Alan, there were about four of us in the room watching, 
And um, Alan was beaming away and saying, it's fantastic, isn't it? Isn't it? I won't swear, but isn't it fantastic? And I said, I, I think you've gone too far, Alan. I just don't, I don't get this. So I disappeared off to get a drink and, uh, you know, the rest is history. But things like that you don't forget because um, obviously within a, within a few months, um, they, were, they were everywhere. Um, yeah. But yeah, that was their first ever gig. One of them had painted his guitar. He had a green Gretsch and a gym, I think it was. And he decided he didn't like it green. So he just got some normal household paint and he just painted his guitar black. Wow. Kind of a strange thing, to, strange thing to do. Those are the things I would not consider doing to a guitar. No, me, me neither. Bit, bit of respect, please, young man. <laughs> bit of respect. <laughs> so in the booklet to Ghost Trains and Country Lanes, it makes mention that BBC DJ Janice Long played Why Does the Rain 19 times on the show. Yeah. Named it the second best single of 1984 after The Killing Moon of all songs. And you did a radio session that appears on the new set, which is absolutely brilliant. What did that support mean to you, particularly as a young indie band who it sounds like you, you pretty much did everything yourselves? Yeah, we did. We didn't, as it says in the book, you know, we had no manager, no agent, no roadie, no driver. It was just the four of us. Um, but yeah, Janice Long's support was and still is really fundamental to the success of the band. We just sent her a, well, I, I posted off her white label one to her one to john peel and um she rang me up a couple of days later and said oh you know i really like this i'm gonna just let you know i'm gonna play it tonight we were thrilled you know wow and then she played it again and then she played it again and then she rang us <laughs> up and said um i really like this record we're gonna get organized get you guys in to record a session before christmas this was sort of the end towards the end of 1984 um and she just kept playing it you know, her show was on the same station as John Peel, but she was on a bit earlier in the evening, so she had a bigger audience than Peel. So that was just that was just fabulous, and we did the session just before Christmas, and she got us on TV because she was there was a TV show running back then on BBC called uh, The Oxford Roadshow, which was filmed in Manchester. And she had a little slot on it every week, and it was sort of Janice's band to watch. And they rang us up early in 85 and said, Janice has picked you to be one of her bands to watch. We'd like you to come on and uh, play Why Does the Rain? And us being us, we said, well, we don't want to do, we don't want to do Why Does the Rain? That's an old single. We've, it's an we, old song. <laughs> Yeah, we've just recorded a fantastic new single. We'll only come on if you let us... I mean, the arrogance of it, really. We said, we'll only come on if you let us play our new single. And they said, well, if Janice says it's OK. And that was, that was up the hill and down the slope. So we went, went off to Manchester to do that. But, you know, so it was, all, it was all down to Janice, really. All that early stuff. And, and doing that TV show directly got us on tour with Terry Hall's band, The Colourfield. So it all lined up and it was just, you know, it's, you've got to have that luck, you know. We, we could have yeah. had a really, really good manager and got none of that stuff. <laughs> I had managers of other bands that were around at the time ringing me up. Um, I remember one in particular. You, you know the June Brides? Yes. Well, Simon, who was their manager and ran their label, the pink label, he rang me up and said, I, I have heard this great news you guys are getting on the TV. So we, would, we were going to be the first creation band to ever be on TV. And he said, um, how, do, how does that happen then? You know, because I'd like to get the June Brides on. And I said, well, I, I don't know. They just asked us. 
And he said, no, come on. You, you know, there must be, there must be a conversation. <laughs> paying here. somebody yeah. off. There must be yeah. payola going on somewhere. <laughs> Nobody could, couldn't quite believe that, you know, you didn't have to do a lot of work to, um, to get yourself on that. But all that stuff just seemed to happen to us, really, which was great, except for a couple of months later, obviously, we, we were no more. So, um, yeah. It was, yeah. it was, yeah. But Jan- to answer your question, Janice was fundamental, and Pete and I did a did a really nice interview with her a few weeks ago, where she played some oh, of the nice. tracks. She still plays "Why Does the Rain" now on her show on BBC. It's amazing. Wow. Yeah. She's highly underrated as a tastemaker. Absolutely. It's. Um, I take every opportunity I can to try and rectify that because people quite rightly talk about John Peel yeah. and his and his legacy, and but. Janice was right up there back back in the day, and she still she has a show now on Welsh radio for the BBC, and yet she still does live sessions, and she still plays lots of new music, and she always always has done. So she's not very well at the moment. So um, I know maybe she, I'll send her a link to this when it comes out, but might, maybe it'll cheer her up. So yes, Janice was uh, was and is a really important part of that British you know new music thing of the late of the mid eighties. That's wonderful. And that Oxford Roadshow clip is great and it's on YouTube. So we will post a link on our Facebook page. Yeah. Yeah. No, that was, that was a good day. It was a very odd day because we were on there, you know, we were the new kids on the block and we were there with Ultravox, China Crisis, the Thompson Twins, Bronsky Beat. Uh, I can't even remember who else, but they were all looking at like at us as if we were, you know, who the hell are these kids? sitting in the green room <laughs> clutching their guitars you know what's that all about <laughs> so andy you're talking about like so bbc ra- radio is still fun in england not like here in america where it's so corporate and you know they they they, they know the science of radio here in america but they forgot about the art but with what you're explaining how you know there's still shows that people have live people come on they play live and yes it's like more of a community instead of just uh, you know mcdonald's or whatever crappy little restaurant yeah we do have plenty of that mcdonald's radio but um we there are there are still um stations and shows that you know their remit is new music get people in to do sessions you know it's um yeah good stuff bbc six music is really good although that's gone a bit corporate but they're still out there if you you know you can you can search stuff out and janice is on bbc wales and you can listen to all that stuff on TuneIn Radio, which is fantastic. I just tell my uh, device that I won't name my Amazon device to uh, play BBC Radio 6 or Radio Wales or whatever, and uh, there it is for you. So it's it's pretty amazing. Yeah, incredible. We live in glorious times. <laughs> we do. We do in, in many ways. Obviously, the exposure work from the TV and Janice's show, Up the Hill and Down the Slope, was a number one hit on the indie charts in May of 1985. As you mentioned, you embarked on a tour with the color field. So for a band at the peak of your potential, not that I want to open up old wounds, but that's okay. What happened on stage on the 24th of June, 1985? Well, what happened two days before was I got a phone call from Bill, the bass player saying, I've just spoken to Pete. He's splitting up the band, keeping the name. Um, We don't need to do the gig at the Hammersmith Palais if we don't want to. And my response, keeping it clean. I'm not sure whether I'm, I can swear on here, so I'm not going to. Sure. Oh, okay. Go for it. So my my reply was basically, fuck that. We're, we're doing the Palais because it was the biggest gig we were ever going to do, you know. And the Hammersmith Palais was a very yeah. famous London venue. 
So we did the gig and it was all very, I, my plan was to punch Pete unconscious in the dressing room, basically. <laughs> but um, when I thought the moment had come, he was standing in front of my guitars. And I thought if I hit him now, it'll probably be my guitar that he lands on and snaps. So I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll wait. So we did the gig and um, somebody said they'd never seen people on a stage standing so far apart. So we were, we were spread out <laughs> right wow. across, the, across the stage of the Hammersmith Palais. And um, I thought, well, I'm not going. I'm not going to let this go quietly. So at one point, I said, you know, I announced this is the last gig we're ever going to do, and there was booing, and somebody threw a pint of lager at Pete, I think, and it all got a bit unpleasant. And um, we start. I've got this gig on tape, by the way. It is brilliant. Wow. And we started to play up the hill and down the slope, and in the middle of it, Pete sort of stopped singing. And he just started talking, and basically saying, "I've had enough. Uh, these guys don't really. They haven't got a clue." At the back of the palais in those days, there was a flight of steps that went up a bit like the Sid Vicious video for My Way. Right. And while, while we were still playing, Pete just disappeared, just went. He threw his guitar off and he just walked up the stairs and disappeared off stage. And the three of us just carried on thrashing away the end of up the hill wow. and down the slope. And uh, people went crazy. They, uh, the people who didn't really understand what was going on thought it was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's all a part of the act. Yeah. And um, after that, we didn't speak to each other for 25 years. So it was quite a strange oh way to stop. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was actually going to ask you about that because I imagine it could go one of two ways, knowing that it's the last gig the band is ever going to play. Right. It could either be like, you know, this rare fire and intensity, like this is the way we want to go out or it could be total chaos. It sounds like it was maybe a little of each. Yeah, a little bit of both. We like to, you know, spread ourselves across across all all tastes catered for. <laughs> I wish I had a time machine just to go back and watch that because I love awkward moments. And that must yeah. have just been an awkward night. And then you just wanted to beat the hell out of yeah your bandmates. Oh god, that would have, I'm 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 excited hearing that. <laughs> well, well, Dave, our magnificent drummer, he took his drums home on the tube on the underground. So. Because, you know, we, um, they just disappeared. So we were, even then we were sort of outside in a van, the rest of us thinking, well, we've got to get the gear home. You know, clearly we, we yeah. all hate each other, but let, let's at least get the equipment. But we, no, there's no sign of them. He, he took his drums, packed them all up and just carried them home on the train. <laughs> so it seems like there's a lot of water under the bridge now, right? And everybody yeah. gets on well again? Yeah, everyone's great again now. You know, it's all, we, we got together and had our say and, People apologised and we discussed the fact that, you know, we, we were all a little bit, uh, it was difficult. You know, as I said to you earlier, we didn't have, what we needed was A, either like Metallica, we each needed our own therapist or we needed a manager <laughs> who would take us aside and say, look, if you guys want to have a punch up, go and have a punch up. And then can we please get yeah. back onto the, you know, we've got, we're supposed to be doing an album. We've got major record labels sniffing around wanting to sign us. Why are you? Don't mess it up now. You know, this is your big chance. Uh, but we didn't have any of that stuff. But, yeah, we're fine now. And, um, you know, as you, as you said, we, we, got, we got back in 2005 and did some recording and played some gigs. And we played in New York uh, a few years ago, and which was a bit of a sort of something that we'd always had on our bucket list back in the day. We wanted to, you know, to at least get to the States and do something. Yeah. And now, obviously, we've got this CD because the interest doesn't seem to go away, which is brilliant. Um, and Cherry Red said, have you got more stuff? And I've got a bag up in my little studio above me, which has got lots of stuff. So we sat down and put this record together and had good fun. Very well done. It's a great set. Thanks. I'm riding my days on a rickety frame. 
The brakes don't work in the pouring rain. The way I look at it, I mean, everything happens for a reason. I know that's probably a, a very pie in the sky type version of it, but you know, what we got after the loft split was what I think are three very good splinter bands. So Pete formed the Weather Prophets with Dave, yeah. Yeah. And then Bill had the Wishing Stones. And yeah. you had the Caretaker Race. Yeah. Which I have to for a moment gush on that album because I think that your one album, Hangover Square, is a lost classic. Oh, thanks. I'm just saying it would make an absolutely beautiful companion to the loft set to uh to have a complete caretaker race set so is there anything in the works no no nothing that's very kind of you to say that thanks i mean i was very proud of that record we we did that as you probably know with stephen street the the very the famous stephen street who remains a friend blur morrissey yes well yeah you know and um yeah and uh that was great stephen signed us to his little label that he had and we made that record. We had great fun making that record. And to work with somebody like him was 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 amazing. My friends fly around this old head. Their songs beating off of these walls. I've stood here for 300 years. And uh, and we we toured a bit, played a bit, but we were sort of it was a difficult time and. A lot of the uh, distribution networks over here all collapsed, so um, mm. it kind of ran out of steam, really. That was the whole uh, Red Rhino. That's I, it. I think a lot of labels, a lot of smaller labels got cut up in that, right? Yeah, and, and we and we just sort of ran out of steam there. We didn't really have the energy to get beyond that and do anything else. But um, thanks for saying those. That's, that's nice, because obviously at that in that band, I wrote all the songs and sang them, whereas in The Loft, Pete wrote everything and sang everything. Right. So... And same with Bill and the Wishing Stones. I mean, Bill made a fantastic record with the Wishing Stones did. and wrote all the songs and sang them. So, yeah, I don't think we realised at the time that we, we could have all written, you know. I think perhaps we should have helped Pete out a bit more and that might have, might have taken some of the load off him if we'd pushed ourselves a little bit. Totally funny and weird coincidence. So yesterday I went down the rabbit hole. I was watching a bunch of YouTube videos of the Sundays for Harriet Wheeler's birthday. Uh, I love my Harriet Wheeler. <laughs> But I came across a 1990 MTV interview with Harriet and David Gavarin, and they mentioned opening for the caretaker race. I'm like, well, this is a huge coincidence. Yeah. So I guess to ask a more general question, who's your favorite act that you've ever played with? Oh, wow. Well, I did love the Sundays. We tried to sign them because at that time, the caretaker race, we started up our own little label. This was before Stephen Street got involved. We had a label called Roustabout, um, myself and a guy called Ian Dixon. After we played with the Sundays, and they were, it's a, again, this was in a tiny little pub in Camden called The Falcon. And she was just so amazing. Her voice was, you know, to die for. And the songs were great. Yeah. And they were lovely people. So we, we arranged to meet them a couple of days later to try and sign them to Roustabout. I've still got their little cassette, little demo cassette that they did, actually, that they gave oh, us. Cool. We can't be sure on it and a couple of other tunes. Wow. Um, but by the end of the, I was going to say interview, but basically we were sitting in a pub having a pint. Uh, by the end of our chat with them about signing them, we said to them, you know what, you've got to sign to Rough Trade, you know, ignore us because, you know, you are going to do really well. <laughs> You're destined for bigger things. Yeah, you are de- absolutely destined for bigger things. Go and sign to Rough Trade. So they went and spoke to Rough Trade and that's what they, you know, and that's what they did. Um, but yeah, that was probably one of the favourite ones to 
in terms of support also from the loft days we we played a couple of times with the chesterfields which is how that sort of connection came about and um they were such a great bunch of people that that's how you know i'm still connected with them as you know still yeah. still playing with the reformed version as it were and still writing and recording So I guess bringing it up to current days, I know that you you mentioned to me a couple of weeks ago that you've been in the studio. So I don't know how much you're able to divulge, but is that with the Chesterfields? Yeah, yeah, we've just um, we've just demoed uh, about a dozen songs. Yeah, that was a frantic couple of days, but we managed to get. In fact, I think we did 13 songs in two days. But they're just they're just demos, wow. but they're you know they're quite decent. We did it in a little studio just outside Glastonbury, which was brilliant, and. Um, they're going back in next week to do a bit more on the vocals, and then we're going to start showing though, playing those demos to one or two people who are interested, with the intention of doing some proper, in inverted commas, recording <laughs> later this year with a as yet unnamed producer, um, and get that. We we'll hope to get that album out next year, so that'll be a brand new Chesterfields record. Cool, that's amazing. And listeners out there, if you're not familiar with the Chesterfields, that is another one of the classic, I guess. We'll call it C86, post C86, just yeah, amazing British indie bands of the, the mid to late 80s. Yeah, and we played uh, the year after The Loft played in New York. Um, we went over, so it would have been 2016, I think. We, the Chesterfields, we, played, we went over to New York and did the New York Pop Fest and played with the Primitives um, at the uh, Knitting Factory in Brooklyn, which was a fantastic, sold-out, hot, noisy night. And... Um, it was great. It was just like when the loft played. Really, it was, it's just so amazing to see these much younger people than us generally. Who you know, you, you play a song like "Ask Johnny D" by the Chesterfields, and the place goes mad. It's 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 yeah. really good. <laughs> How do these kids know this song? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. We even did a Caretaker Race song that night, and they seem to know that one as well. Uh, wow. We did Any- Anywhere But Home, which was a single. Yeah. And um, people were singing along to it, and I thought, it's just like being on another planet. I didn't know people <laughs> use this stuff, you know. That has to be surreal and very rewarding. Yeah, it was delightful. It really was. Going back to your music journalism days, do you remember your most glowing review and your most scathing review? Oh, wow. Oh, now that's a, oh, you've put me on the spot there. I, I, my, <laughs> most, my most glowing reviews would probably have been for anything that the go-betweens did because I was oh. such and still am such a massive go-betweens fan. Me too. <laughs> um, so I reviewed i think pretty much all of their records i i got first first dibs on anything that came in by the go-betweens and uh not i mean i would if i thought they were slacking off a little bit i would tell them but uh you know all those all those 80s um go-betweens records would have would have got glowing reviews the second smith's album i think i reviewed and i think that's what got me invited around to morrissey's for tea when he had uh-huh. his flat in uh, kensington um and the worst would probably have been somebody like Fields of the Nephilim, some of those sort of goth things. Yeah, yeah probably that. Um, oh, I did, I did slag off Bruce Springsteen once, and I got told off for that. Um, I think that's easy. Yeah, I got. Yeah, I, I 
gave Bruce a bad review. I've never gotten Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. You remember which uh, what that was for? Well, was it for a record? I think it was for Born in the USA, actually, the album. So um, oh. I, I probably didn't quite understand the subtleties of what he was, what he was getting at, to be honest. I, I probably took it a bit yeah. too literal. <laughs> I think a lot of people did. It's a yeah. misunderstood record. I, yeah. I think the production lets that one down a little bit, but the songs are great. But I like yeah. The Boss. But I, I'm a massive go-betweens fan. It was it was one of our greatest honors. Our first guest on the show was was Robert Vickers. Mm. That was a very cool moment. They're genius. Us. They came to see us a couple of times when we when the loft played. We played in fact in the middle of that Colorfield tour. We played a gig at the Hammersmith Riverside Studios, which was a creation slash Kitchenware Records night. Mm. And it was us, the Jasmine Minks, and from Kitchenware there was um, Hurrah and the Dainties and Robert and Grant from the go-betweens came to the gig because they'd been speaking to bill and they wanted to know how we got the they said they thought the guitar sound on up the hill and down the slope the ep was was beautiful and they were they were very interested to know what what the tricks were although there weren't yeah. any tri- there weren't any tricks but um <laughs> particularly on our cover version of richard howe's time they really i mean it does sound nice and they they liked the sound of that so they came to the gig and they was i could see them just because robert as you probably know he's so tall mm-hmm I could see him at the back of the audience. And when Pete announced, oh, we're going to do a, this is a cover of a Richard Howe song, they started making their way, zigzagging forward through the, through the crowd. And just as it got to my guitar solo, which, which I was always quite proud of, Robert was basically standing right in front of me and I completely fluffed the guitar solo. So he came, <laughs> he came to see and, what, and hear great guitar playing and he, all he got was... Yeah. <laughs> well, Andy, as a music journalist, is yeah. there a band that maybe you reviewed that you just didn't get and then they became huge? Uh, because System of a Down, I've also worked in radio forever, and System of a Down was the band that, with like the song Sugar, I, I never got. Uh, I do like the band, but it's yeah. like, you know, but then that song became huge. Is there anything you kind of like just missed on or where you just thought, wow, I thought I had, you know, golden ears, but I don't get this. No, there was, there was lots of stuff that I, 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 I really didn't get dance music, um, British sort of, you know, the rave, the stuff that creation mm-hmm. sort of got into in the, at the end of the eighties, I wasn't keen on, and I really wasn't keen on what I've never been that keen on primal scream, to be honest. Yeah, I found them. I found them a bit challenging, which is given that they're such close friends with Alan <laughs> and of Creation Stable mates. I probably shouldn't say, but I've never, I've never really got Primal Scream. I just love how multifaceted Primal Scream is. I mean, that they could go from something like you know All Fall Down and Velocity Girl to Higher Than the Sun to Accelerator. I don't like it when I think they're trying to be a very bad version of the Rolling Stones. You know, some of that. All that, that Memphis, all that Mem- Memphis stuff, you know. Every few albums, they have to kind of get back into that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm told Bobby's a very nice man. So, and he put us on in Glasgow, which was our only ever gig that we played. He cried on the phone actually because he booked us to play at the first night of a gig of a club in in that he was running in Glasgow in 1985 called the Splash One Club. Hmm. And um, the way he booked it was he rang our house, which is the only way people could get us to do gigs. He rang the house when I wasn't there and Bill Prince agreed to do it for 50 quid. And so I came home and Bill said, I've got a, we've got a gig in Glasgow, 50 quid. And I said, well, 
how are we going to get up there? How are we going to get our gear there? How many nights are we going to be away from home? And, and we can't do it for 50 quid. You'll have to ring him back and tell him we can't do it. So Bill rang Bobby back to tell him that he'd made a mistake and we can't come and play in Glasgow. And Bobby burst into tears on the phone. Oh, no. So Because uh, they'd already made the posters. So Bill said, OK, we will come and play. Leave it with me. I'll sort it out with the guys. So we did go and play and we... They sorted us out. We, we had to go up on a coach, on a bus, carrying our guitars overnight. Wow. And they put us up in a little flat that somebody had, and um, they, got all the, you know, they got all their mates together to provide the back line, and that was it. Well, back in the day, that was the only gig we ever did outside England. And you made Bobby Gillespie cry, so there's that. <laughs> Sorry, Bobby. <laughs> in 1977, I think maybe one of the first songs that I played over and over right around that time was The Who. Uh, squeeze box. Brett probably was listening to some child, uh, you know, see us for cookie, and that's good enough for me. Mickey Mouse Club. That was Mickey that was Mouse my jam. Club. The the disco version, yeah. <laughs> but you were there in 1977. Is such a god watershed year for music. I mean, there was so much. I mean, music started to change. It was the birth of maybe like what MTV was going to be. The early 80s music. Uh, there was this upswell of talent, like the timeless classics from. Fleetwood Mac with Rumors. You also have Motorhead coming out with their debut album. Billy Joel had Strangers. Foreigner's debut album came out. Pink Floyd, UFO, Meatloaf, New, uh, Driving Rhythms came out, which sounds to me like early 80s music. So from 1975, 76, and then everything changing in 77, what was that like when the punk explosion happened in England? I mean, the Sex Pistols, yeah. they, they hit the scene, and everything changed. Culture changed. The way kids you know looked and thought and took on the world what was that like living that it was really exciting in terms of the music um but you're right it was and i was going to talk about it actually with one or two of my selections because there came a point where you pretty quickly in 76 late 76 and into 77 where you kind of had to decide which side are you on and it was um, you know are you are you clinging on to all this rock stuff um or are you going to go with the new guys and are you going to, you know, are you going to start following the Pistols and the Clash and the Buzzcocks and all the rest? Um, you can't do both. That was, the, that was very much the prevailing narrative over here was, no, you can't. You've got to get rid of all that old, old vinyl, if you know, and start again. Um, yeah. And you can't be in a band playing Wishbone Ash and The Jam. You know, it just doesn't work. So make your mind up, boys. Which way are you going to go? I get your heads down and get on with it. But it was thrilling to be, I mean, I was 17, I think about 17 years old. So for me, as somebody who was trying to get to grips with being in a band, playing the guitar, you know, having some money to buy records, it was, well, you know, I, I can't think any time it would have been more thrilling and more exciting than it was, to be honest. Yeah, because I here in the 80s, it was like, it sounded like that, like hair bands and rap. You had to choose. You couldn't have both until anthrax and um you know uh, bring on the noise public yeah. enemy yeah public enemy then that's when it's kind of like okay maybe we can like both and then it led to like that new you know metal that came out in the 90s but that's mm, when i sorry. think i totally know what you're talking about you had to choose a side because you couldn't like both and if those two sides ever met it was you know a rumble yeah it was a rumble <laughs> yeah you know, people who would come and see our band and our band changed a lot over a period of about three months 
and some people weren't happy you know they're saying you know why are you suddenly playing all these buzzcock songs and what you know because it was basically a covers covers band why you know why aren't you playing what's wrong what was wrong with that you know, old rock thing that you were doing six yeah. months ago and it was like nah we're never doing that again <laughs> <laughs> so we know what side you landed on yes Yes. Um, doesn't mean to say I haven't gone back and, you know, rebought all those records that I binned off, yeah. in the, you know, like everybody does. Fleetwood Mac and Rumors, that, that album is such a great album, just classic song after classic song. And then again, I talked about how I like awkward moments. What an awkward album it must have been for Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham, breaking up, making each other sing each other's lyrics that ripped <laughs> the other one. Ugh. I just laugh oh, yeah. and giggle the whole time I'm listening to that. And that's why I love that album so much. I love, I've, I devour all these documentaries that are out now about, you know, bands splitting up is one of my favourite things and bands yeah. falling out and having affairs behind each other's backs. And I, I love all of that. There's, you know, so, yeah. I'm, well, I'm, you lived I'm, it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of the Fleetwood Mac story. <laughs> yeah, oh, me too. Rumors is such a great album. I was only a highly evolved three-year-old at the time. <laughs> But the number of albums that I have from 1977 in my collection is pretty astounding. But yeah, I think Rumors is right up there. ELO's Out of the Blue is up there. Heck, the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack is up there. So, I mean, well, Queen, News of the World came out. I mean, I, that's, yeah, I remember yeah. watching that on, on, on TV. You know, We Will Rock You, like the early, what then became music videos, was their TV appearances from that. Is yeah. what I remember. Uh, I think that was the, the sequined jean jacket look. We had the bedazzled, the bedazzled. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I've got a list here actually of all the, the, the number one albums from that year in the UK. And, uh, it's quite a strange list, you know, Queen, Abba, Slim Whitman, Frank Sinatra, <laughs> the Muppets. <laughs> yes. Elvis Presley, you know, and then the Sex Pistols. <laughs> wow. wow. That is just a potpourri of music. I mean, that is <laughs> like, what is the pattern there? Yeah. Madness. Anything goes right. <laughs> Yeah. But I mean, you could definitely see that the tides were turning. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Andy, first of all, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I want you on again. Your band is awesome. I love your music. I have not heard the new release that you guys have out, but I'm going to go and run out and get it. And um, yes. I suggest everybody else go do the same thing because talk about some great music uh, and great singles. You know, that's like a lot of bands had a lot of albums, but you, your, your band put out the loft, of course, the singles, and you guys still matter today, and that's just amazing. It's so amazing to have, you know, there's, there's people who, Thanks. you know, like, you know this more than anybody, kind of like the shelf life of a band's, you know, sometimes five years, um, but your, your music is uh, continuing to inspire people, and that's so, so cool. Well, it's very kind of you to say so. Thank, thanks for having me, guys. It's been really great fun. I've enjoyed it. And I've got some records to go away and research now as well. All right. Yeah. Brett always does that to you. He gives you homework, man. It's what it's all about. Always. It's part of the joy of doing this. We love sharing and we learn from one another. So is there anything else you guys got to say before we go? Well, thank you, Andy, for appearing today. I mean, it, it really has been a pleasure. I mean, again, you know, I've been listening to you since I discovered The Loft gosh, 27 years ago now. And, you know, your music has been something that has meant a lot to me. I can't thank you enough for the great music, for being here. And thank you, everybody, for listening. It's been great. So thank you for that. And thanks for the kind words. Want to hear more from today's guest, Andy Strickland from The Loft and The Caretaker Race? Well, there's plenty more where that came from. Make sure to head over to your favorite music retailer to order The Loft's wonderful new two CD compilation, 
from Cherry Red Records, Ghost Trains and Country Lanes, Studio, Stage and Sessions 1984 to 2015. You'll be glad you did. The theme music is Frequency, written and performed by yours truly, Brett Vargo. Any other music in this episode is presented solely for purposes of review, examination, and news reporting. If you like what you hear, go to your record store and pick up the LP, CD, cassette, or 8-track, or stream it if you're one of those newfangled fancy pants. If we're lucky enough to still have these artists with us, go out and see some live music. For the latest updates, join the O3L community at facebook.com slash only3lads. We want to hear from you. And while you're at it, click on the Shop Now link for the coolest threads. Until next time, thanks for listening. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.